that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because, they, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you were very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far away from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Some, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris the other, and others with them. Let us pray real quick. Lord, we pray that you would add the blessing to the reading of your word. We pray that by your spirit you would teach us, that you would grow us in our desire to know you, but also that you would truly grow us in our desire to make you known. So be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this past October, my wife and I and uh, another couple from our church had the opportunity to go over to the UK. And we spent about a week over there, and we ended up visiting a number of different cities, different churches, different church plants, talking to a lot of church planters. And if you know anything about the United Kingdom, it's, it's not the most fertile ground for sowing seed for the gospel. Uh, there's a in fact, if you go to Scotland, I believe that right now it's on the list of unreached countries. There's so few believers there. And so as we were going from church to church and place to place, uh, it was really interesting and really encouraging to see how much fruit there was, how churches were being planted, how people were coming to faith, how they're planting new churches from church plants. And uh, so it was very encouraging as you go from one place to the next, talking to missionaries, or not really missionaries, uh, people ministering in their own context. 
And uh, when we got to Scotland, a theme started hitting me, and it uh, hit me because what I saw in this church was true of many others. We were talking to some people, and you realize that there was this church in the middle of Edinburgh that had been planted about 10 years ago, and it had been experiencing steady growth. But then they started planting churches. In fact, they planted three churches in three years. Not only had their attendance shot up significantly, but all three of these churches were viable already. But the interesting thing is how they plant churches over there. The way that they planted their first church there in Edinburgh, outside of the city, was this. They asked, basically, who wants to plant a church? And about 20, 25 people raised their hands. And so they went to plant a church. This would not be like you and I planting another church in Macon where we just go to a different church in town. They moved their family. They sold their homes. They quit their jobs. They went to a place they didn't know anyone because they were committed to the church and to church planting because they knew that people in their country needed to hear about Jesus. That, to me, was encouraging. That, to me, reminded me of the book of Acts. That's the kind of stuff we saw happening because we, we, we love early church history because God was doing miraculous things. The church was growing all over the place. We saw this faith and this courage. And when I looked at some of these saints and looking at these churches in the UK, I saw how zealous they are for God and their deep commitment. Also, their boldness. In a context which is not friendly, they are incredibly bold and faithful. And that, not just the churches, but the pastors, their elders, And you saw churches growing because of this faith community that exists. And sometimes these churches would grow because what they had was just so contagious. Sometimes these churches would get planted and grow because of great sacrifices that were being made, not just by one or two, but dozens of people sometimes at one time. And sometimes if you just listen to the stories, the churches just pop up almost in miraculous ways that God is just working And it's all in a very hard place. But if you were to hear these people pray, hear the optimism in their their words, and then also listen to them, because they have a plan, they have a vision, because this church is planting another church, which is going to plant another church. So as you can kind of consider what's going on in the UK, uh, what's happening in Asia or South America or Africa, as we come to our passage today in Acts chapter 17, I think we face a challenge, or really, we, more we face a question. Are we seeing the church grow? Right here. Now, it's really easy to ask that question generally. Are we seeing the church grow? It changes when I say, is this church growing? Because I just said something about us, right? Are we growing? Now, if we ask, are we growing? Uh, are we evangelistic? I guess to turn it around and say, are you evangelistic? Would you describe yourself that way? If I was right now ask you to do an honest diagnostic about yourself, like your normal self, not the best self you've ever been, but your normal day-to-day self, probably the self you've been over the last month. We'll start there. What kind of diagnostic would it read? Would it say kingdom-focused? Or would it say, uh, warning, off-task, <laughs> off-mission, concerned about other things what would your diagnostic say Uh, if we were if you've been here for a while and you feel comfortable in your own mind 
what would the diagnostic of our church be? The answers may vary, and if you were to study this church, you would find plenty of examples of very encouraging things. But I think you could also say you could find a lot of places where we could improve, where we could do better. And I guess I should probably just throw out a warning. I'm going to try to have a little bit of a family talk kind of thing going on here today. And we'll start by this. I don't know if you're aware, but for about a decade now, our church attendance has basically been the same. In fact, if you look at it, it's actually kind of started to decline some. What does that mean? Uh, I think it means there's opportunity. I mean, there really is opportunity for us, and that's really exciting. But if we want to change that trend, if we want to change, we have to address the question, why? Why has that happened? Why is it not going up? Why is it not changing? Inevitably, also, we're going to have to admit where we need to change. We're going to have to admit that and then be willing and ready to change. If you look at church history, and you look at countries or places, even cities, where the church has kind of gone dormant or declined, there's usually one common factor, and that is the people of the church, all of us, have neglected their missional task and fallen into some kind of self-absorption. That's, that's strong language. Uh, I don't know. There's probably a better way to say that. But there's this idea of we've neglected our missional task and kind of got us-centered or me-centered. And it's not really in always in overly dramatic ways. We don't just shift in a big way. We aren't doing crazy stuff. Normally, it just ends up looking like churches have more and more people focused on pursuing a life of ease or money or hobbies, possessions, really trying to keep up appearances, acquiring vacation homes. What ends up happening is just fewer and fewer people um, show up, or maybe the people that are here show up fewer Sundays. That's one way to go. Another way to go is just the opposite direction. You see maybe churches uh, hit a decline when they obsess over themselves, when you become ingrown and inward-focused at the expense of those who are outside of the church. When I consider myself, and really this is an offer to all of us, it's an opportunity to examine ourselves. As we come to this passage today, and considering maybe a plateau of growth, we may consider some of the symptoms that maybe I just described. Now, I can only speak for myself. And some of this may not be super encouraging for your pastor to say to you. But I must confess that there are idols in my life that detract me from my mission. There are idols that have kept me from staying on mission like I should. I get me-centered. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think we all deal with this. But until we're willing to own this and to kill this, we're going to be stuck. We're going to be stuck. I love a life of ease. I love being comfortable. I just don't see a lot of times in the scriptures where that bears fruit. Fruit that will last. Now, I wanted to start here because it speaks to motivation why we do what we do. 
What moves us? What has captured our hearts and our minds that makes us do what we do? And I know I've already maybe made some of you mad by what I've already said. Um, Maybe you're a little perturbed with me because you feel like I'm singling you out, calling you out. It's like vacation homes, attendance, idolizing your church, love of money, comfort. You're, you're, You're calling me out. Calling myself out. Maybe you're a little perturbed. Maybe you're mad at me, though. Man, you love your church. I love this church. But, Justin, you just threw our weaknesses out there for everyone to see. How dare you? I do it because I know, I know with deep conviction that this church truly loves Jesus. I know with deep conviction that this church wants to see God glorified. I know with deep conviction that this church wants to see people people saved. They want to see lives changed. They want to see the church grow. That's I desperately want to see that. I know you do. I, I would love for the, that these pews couldn't hold us, that they'd overflow every Sunday to where we just have to start planting churches because we can't handle it. I'm also fully aware if I'm to play my role in that story, I have to change. I have to start killing the idols that keep me from being on mission. We have to do that. A lot of times we walk into church wanting to hear something but not wanting to change. A lot of times we walk into church wanting to learn some stuff, maybe even wanting to be convicted, but the next step, that's where we got to get to. We got to get to the point of change. I need to change. Naturally, I'm just selfish. We're all human. We're all fallen. This is true for all of us. But if we want to see God use this church like he has for the last 200 years, he's going to have to keep stirring our hearts, working on our motivations, working on provoking us to these things. So we're starting by highlighting our motives, actually because I feel like that's where this text starts. It starts with motivation. It starts with God provoking Paul. And that is also where change starts. So this morning... We're going to consider Paul's ministry moment right here, and we're really going to try to glean three things that are vital for effective evangelism. Three things that are vital for effective evangelism. I said this in the first service. If you type into Microsoft Word the word evangelism and then look up synonyms, you know what you get? Nothing. It's the only word I've ever found that doesn't have a synonym that will pop up. It's irreplaceable, and it's irreplaceable in the church. And I wanted to get a different synonym in there, a different word, because if I knew I said evangelism, he was like, no, nah, no, nah, not, nope. Like that literally been there, tried that, hated it, disaster, getting out. And, uh, and you're like, if it wasn't so awkward, I would get up and leave right now. But it's not that bad. And that's how you became a Christian. So let's talk about the three things that are vital for effective evangelism. One is we must be provoked. The second is is we must know our neighbor. And the third is we must be relevant. We need to be provoked, we need to know our neighbor, and we need to be relevant. So provoked, know, and relevant. The first one is we must be provoked. Effective ministry starts with a proper motivation. When I was 10 years old, my aunt got married uh, to this farm man like from Iowa, just big dude who ended up playing college football. So I mean, as a 10-year-old, this guy was more like a mountain. 
And if you knew me as a 10-year-old, this meant I'm about to attack this human, like wrestling moves, tackling, like all this stuff, because that's just what I did. Now, me and my cousins would do this, and my, my uncle was a veterinarian, and he'd always say the same thing to us every time we would start messing with him, jumping on him, pushing him, and, you know, putting him in a chokehold or something. Uh, he would say, you mess with the bull, you get the horns. And I always keep messing. He's like, you mess with the bull, you're going to get the horns. What that usually meant is, you keep messing with me, I'm going to get you. What that always meant was me on my back in the living room in front of our entire family with him holding me down, putting me in a hold, and literally making me cry uncle before he would stop. Always turned out bad for me. It's kind of weird that I never learned that if I just left him alone, he would not do that to me. But that's kind of true for all of us, though. Um, We will kind of always do nothing unless we're provoked. In our passage, if you look at it clearly, or quickly, it says, now while Paul was waiting for them, which is Silas and Timothy, because he had gone ahead because they were kind of running for their lives, um, he was waiting for them in Athens. He's just waiting around. It says, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So this entire kind of famous evangelism moment in Acts chapter 17 is all kicked off because Paul was provoked. Like, provoked means to be motivated to action. And Paul was just sitting around, literally killing time, and then he was provoked in his spirit, like, for sure, by Holy Spirit, and this made him move outward. A lot of times, by the way, when it comes to provoking, our experience is usually very negative. Like, if you're saying you're being provoked, it means, like, someone's very annoying. Someone is making you mad. Or maybe your other experience with provoking is you're being provoked to sin, maybe provoked to think lustfully, maybe being provoked to make an impulsive decision, maybe an impulsive purchase, maybe uh, to say an unkind word or have an emotional outburst, whatever it may be. But Paul's being provoked here has nothing to do with that. It says that he was provoked or moved to action. Why does it say, look at verse... Because he saw that the city was full of idols. His concern and pity for his new neighbors overwhelmed him because he knew what the eternal state of their soul would be and also the torment in their current life because they didn't know Christ. Now as we read this and we look at this, you may be like me and, and wonder, how often am I provoked like that? How often am I getting this unction or motivation in my spirit? Because I look around me, I look at my co-workers. Well, I work at a church. Not a good example. I look at those around me who, who don't know Christ. And I see the hardship in their life. And it's like I move towards them because I want them to know Jesus. How often are we motivated or provoked like that? The answer is probably not enough. Probably not often enough. So what's the disconnect? Why don't we feel provoked in our spirit? There could be a ton of options, and probably hundreds, but I'm going to suggest one. Now I'm going to say, I think, we're not provoked because we aren't listening or looking for it. We're not provoked because we're not listening or looking. We simply don't hear the soft whisper of God or the nudge or the prodding of the Holy Spirit because we weren't listening. Even worse, 
God may be shouting and we don't hear him. Uh, I have my youngest child. If he is given an iPad, you could be in front of him, like in his face, right here, talking at him. And if he's watching the iPad, it literally is like you don't exist. I feel like sometimes we're the kid on the iPad. God is talking to us, urging us, prodding us, and our eyes and ears are pinned on to something else, and we miss it. We often miss the message because our eyes and ears are set on things other than God. And I get it. We live busy lives. Uh, There is a lot to be done. There's a lot that must get finished. There's a lot of good things that we're involved with, important things, like our family or work or church things, or social calendar, things that really do take up our time. And additionally, uh, that's enough to keep us busy. But then I think another real reason we don't hear God or see God's uh, nudging in our life is because we keep ourselves pretty well distracted from God. Uh, we keep, I, I can find myself easily distracted. I'll give you some options. Following the news cycle politics, sports, get yourself involved in all kinds of different activities. How about dwelling on social media? Just the constant work of trying to put out an image of yourself so that people will think better of you. Literally, people do this, I think, five hours a day. We get self-absorbed. I started off by saying that might be a problem. It's a, it is the trap. It is this trap that we end up being deaf to God's influence in our lives. It's one of the traps that gets us off mission. And sometimes it might feel almost impossible to get back around to hearing God like that. Especially if we're not spending time in the Word, if we're not praying, we're not, as Paul says in Galatians 5, walking in step with the Spirit. We're not going to recognize these promptings. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, uh, addresses this somewhat when he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What he's meaning is that sometimes we're so comfortable that we don't hear God. We're so comfortable that he has to make us uncomfortable just so that we will listen. The good news is we can listen. We can hear. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Through his spirit, he will talk to us. It is our job to listen and to look. It's our job to be taking care to make sure that we are listening and looking. Pillars of our life have to be this sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Pillars of our life have to be things like our time in the Word, being at worship, praying. These These are all key to our ability to hear. You know who else convicts us like this? Other Christians. You ever been around the the really encouraging slash annoying Christian whose sensitivity to God is just so high that it's convicting to you that you would much rather them leave you alone in your conscience because you know, like, I probably should change. Or they're looking out into the world saying, we need to do something about the lostness of the world. You want to go do, you want to do evangelism? And you're like, Those people. The other option is this. You can show up to church And God will put Acts 17 as the sermon text, and we're going to put our finger right here and say, deal with it, right? 
And that's what we're doing this morning. The truth is, if we ever want to see people come to Christ, to see this church grow, to see make and bless, it's going to start with proper motivation inside of us. Motivation, it starts in your heart. And it goes into your thoughts. And then it's going to come out your mouth and through your hands. But where we start, where we're provoked, is going to win the day. And that's why I'm spending so much time here. Paul was motivated and moved to action because he saw the state of the people around him and it bothered him. It has to bother us as well. If Jesus is the light of the world, if these people were really lost, they were harassed and helpless sheep like we see Jesus talk about, Paul had to go. If Jesus really is life to offer life to the full, if he really is the way, the truth, and the life, and if no one comes to the Father except through him, Paul had to move. Paul had to go. We need to go. All those are true. Jesus is the life. He is light. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. We need to go. Like, that's the only option. The best way I can put it is this. To be provoked is to have this palpable spiritual awareness about us. Distinctly aware of the fact that without Jesus, people are finding themselves in a situation of desperation. And this sensitivity leads to us then doing something. Now as you get ready to transition to the next point, we have to ask the question, what is motivating us? What is driving our thoughts and our desires? What's directing our steps? Could you say that your motivation over the past month would be similar to Paul? I don't know. Let's just do this for a second. Let's just have this come to Jesus meeting as a group, as a family. I know I'm belaboring the point, but we have to get this. It has to start with motivation. A lot of times the reason the train doesn't arrive at its destination is because it never left the station to begin with. we got to get this right. We read this passage. We see this example of Paul. It, change, growth, it all is going to start with want to. It's going to start with want to. It's this motivation. That's what moved Paul. For us, it's going to start with a group of Christians, a church, being provoked to do something because we look out and we see a plentiful harvest and we want to do something. I can promise you there will always be a reason not to share your faith. You will always find that you're busy. There will always be comforts to pursue. But let's start fighting back. Lay aside some of those idols. Start doing a better job of listening and see where God might motivate us and where he might move us and provoke us. So moving on, let's talk about the next thing. Not only must we be provoked, we must know our neighbor if we're going to effectively love and serve them. And I really should be careful right now. I'm about to use an illustration about my mother-in-law. So uh, it's very important I get this right. Uh, but it's very complimentary. Uh, my mother-in-law has this gift. Like, there's this kind of ongoing joke. If my mother-in-law is next to you in the grocery checkout line, 
by the time you both leave the grocery checkout line, you will have spilled your guts to her and told her your whole life story. And she's just, you're just going to find yourself saying things like, I don't even know I'm talking to you. But she does this. She has this gift. It's part of why she's so hospitable. But the reason this happens is because she asks people questions, and she listens, and she wants to know. And they end up telling her stuff. She finds favor in their eyes because she seeks to know them. The same will be true for us. I don't know if you paid attention to this passage, but you will soon realize how much stuff Paul learned about his new neighbors in very short order. I mean, he found out where people were going to the synagogue. He found out what people were talking about in the marketplace or what these philosophers were doing. He paid attention to what their altars are like, what their poetry is like, what inscriptions are on these things. He observed these people. He got to know them. It would have been really easy for him to be like, I'm in the city just killing time. I'll just, you know, I'm going to yelp the best restaurants and figure out, eat some good food, see some sights, and then when they get here, we'll move on. Or I deserve some rest. I'm just going to chill out here for a while. It could have been really easy to do that. But no, he went and spent time getting to know them so he might start to understand them so that he might be able to love them even to be able to share Jesus with them. This is a very important lesson for us if we want to see the church grow as well. We need to know people. We need to know people more deeply. Maybe it's that we need to know more people. But knowing is important. As we read, Paul arrived, he warned these things about the people of Athens, and he kind of pulls the think-before-you-speak card. He knew it was going to be essential to know something about them if he was going to love them. If we want to reach our city or our neighbor, it's going to start by knowing them. If you want to consider what posture this might take from us, it's in relationships, your relationship to the church or the city or a group of people you might find yourself in, we play more of a host than consumer role. I mean, we are trying to be invitational We're trying to love people and make them feel welcome. That's what we're trying to do. We're not a consumer. We're a host. And if if they show up, we need to make sure they feel welcome. Uh, It's so true. It's so true. If people feel embraced by a community, they will often embrace the truth of that community. But... If they show up to a community and they are not embraced, you can almost automatically know they're not going to embrace the truth of that community. So knowing people, building these relationships, is going to be vital. Application for this point really is an invitation to you. It's an opportunity. Uh, One thing that there's a group of people in this church trying to do is this. We're trying to get to know our city. We're trying to have conversations with over a thousand people. There's something called a post-it project. We're going around going to ask people, what does Macon mean to you? And they're going to answer it on a post-it. And we're going to be talking to them, get their thoughts. We're going to get to know what Macon thinks about Macon, what people value. But we're also going to have an opportunity to have interchanging of phone numbers and fight people to things. Like We're going to interact with a lot of people. The whole idea is that we gather all these things together into a big, huge art installation, connect the themes, and discuss if people feel like this is true or not. 
invite them into what we're doing to show them that, hey, we want to know you. We want to know our city and serve our city. We want to put out there the fact that there's something, it's more than a steeple downtown on this corner. There's a treasure in here. And it's not just the community, it's the Christ in this community. And so we're trying to do, if you'd like to be a part of it, we want it to be more than a group effort. We want it to be a church-wide effort. And there's a million ways you can get involved with that. But we want to know our city and serve our city. Now lastly, we want to be provoked. We must be provoked. We must be, sorry, let me get some water real quick. I don't even remember where I was at. Oh, the last point. Yeah, we must be relevant. If we're to effectively share Jesus with people, we must be relevant. Um, because it's not enough to be provoked. It's not enough just to know people. We actually have to talk to them. And to be relevant means to be effective. Uh, irrelevant means not effective. Uh, this means to be able to communicate the life-giving message of Jesus to people, things like grace and forgiveness and faith and repentance in a way that makes sense to people. It needs to be relevant. Um, it needs, our message needs to be relevant to our culture and community. Otherwise, we, an entire generation of people just miss the gospel. Now, I know that uh, there is some nervousness with this word relevancy um, because a lot of times under the under the banner of relevancy, people have compromised the gospel or compromised Christian ethics or perhaps they've watered down the gospel so that it's not offensive. And that's not what I'm talking about at all because that would rob the gospel of its power and its beauty. It's not what Paul was doing in Acts chapter 17. He didn't water down anything, but he was relevant. He spoke to people on their turf using things they understood talked in a way that they talked so that they might know because his goal in relevancy was to persuade it was to win people to Christ and so we must be relevant as well uh, sometimes I ask mechanical questions about cars uh, to a couple friends and then they start talking and I just stop and I was like let's pretend I'm an idiot and I don't know anything about cars and you need to start over using words a child would understand because that's really where I'm at maybe draw me a picture okay uh, that is an example of them being relevant to me they're seeing who I am and what I comprehend and already know and they're adapting the message because relevancy is really a contextualization it's not compromise you know who the most relevant person of all time was it's church it's Jesus right Jesus is really the most relevant person for one, how does God become relevant to a human being? He becomes a human being. It doesn't get more relevant than that. But if you look at how Jesus spoke to people, how Jesus shared the gospel with people, he was always relevant. He was always trying to be relevant. To those who are weak and lowly in the culture, he spoke gently and plainly. He often used imagery. He told stories. He took cultural norms and used them so as to explain more complex ideas. He told parables for Samaritans even. He took what they knew of the Bible and used it to share the gospel with them. For the Pharisees who were against him, these intellectual, he tailored messages for them. And he was always bold. He was always inviting, always saying things like, come and see, taste and see, come, follow me, repent and believe. Jesus made sure to contextualize the gospel. 
And on his behalf right now, I need to do that for him to be relevant. If you're here today and you've been inquiring about the claims of Christ, you don't know Jesus, you're curious, let me just share with you, Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life. He really does offer life to the full. The guilt, the shame, the fear that you may have over sin, he can remove that from you. Put your faith in him. Repent and turn to him, and he will change you. You don't change yourself. He will change you. When Jesus left, he left behind a small group of trained messengers, and he left them with a message saying that all authority had been given to him, and therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Go make disciples of all nations. In 2020, we can sit here, we can read Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, read the Great Commission, and it still says the same thing at the beginning. Go. It's time to go. Like, there is no reason to wait. That may mean us as individuals, we need to take our role in God's redemptive story more seriously. But we need to be relevant. We need to be a relevant body of believers in making And if we're going to do that, we need to know our neighbor. We need to know our city. And we can only know our city if we are provoked and moved and motivated to go to them. And we're only going to be provoked and moved and motivated if we love them, if we see where they are. And the only reason I'm going to love my neighbor is because I look at my relationship with Christ and realize he first loved me. That is the only thing that is going to move me out. You may be thinking, all of this is great, but I don't know how to be relevant with my words. You do. You do. Just be like every other person Jesus healed in the New Testament. He just says, go and tell them what I have done for you. Tell them what God has done for you. We can all do that. We can tell them what he did for us. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is going to be us remembering and celebrating and partaking in the fact of that God came to earth and saved us. He delivered us. Because he was provoked in his spirit, Jesus moves to the cross, dies for us, and his resurrection makes it that we might have life and life abundantly. So let us pray now. Lord, as we finish this, we pray that you would grow us with a heart for you, that we would be in step with your spirit, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Father, we also pray that you would grow us in our desire to make you known. Uh, As we have known you, as you have known us, Lord, may we point people to Jesus. So Father, we ask that you do this, and we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing our hymn of preparation, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded.